0: We're going to be visiting several portions of Scripture tonight, but as a touchstone, we'll turn to James chapter 4, verse 12. We heard read in the Scripture reading about we're priests unto God. The Bible tells us that the Old Testament priesthood, as it was, was abolished, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us, and James writes, in James 4, verse 12, there is one lawgiver, of course, that is God, who is able to save and to destroy, who art thou that judgest another. We're going to speak at the batter tonight, one of our tenets of the statement of faith, as the liberty of conscience, something we hold very precious and very dear. Interestingly, many statements of faith do not contain this tenet that is so important to us, that we we hold dear, and may the Lord give us blessing as we study what his word has to say about it tonight our gracious heavenly father we submit to you we thank you for your gift of conscience which your word tells us is implanted in every man and woman born the law of god written engraved upon the heart the conscience bearing witness excusing or or uh, accepting and lord you've you've given us that tool which when it works in conjunction with your Holy Spirit and your Word is a, a very safe and wonderful guide. Lord, we know that conscience alone cannot save and that it, cannot, it can be uh, shunned, it can be uh, become calloused. We pray that as believers who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, that our conscience would, Lord, bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our wills, our emotions, and every part of us that we would follow you in paths of righteousness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1677, a church called the Maze Pond Baptist Church in London, England, called that because of its location, issued this statement of faith, which later became known as the Baptist Confession. And uh, years later, in 1680, it was circulated among the churches, and signed the first issue of the, the statement of faith was unsigned because uh, they knew their lives would be at stake. It was uh, illegal to meet as they were and to practice as they practiced according to conscience. Uh, I read recently where there was an Isaac Lamb who signed that statement, the 1680 statement of faith, and I would like to claim they claim to him. I don't know at all whether there's any relation whatsoever, but I mean it's not it could be couldn't it the name is so unusual interestingly the the statement came to the United States and became known as the Philadelphia Confession of Faith which incidentally was published in the printing house of Benjamin Franklin can you imagine that can you imagine it's always amazing to me that people can handle the things of God and and print documents like that and yet remain unmoved by them we know that Benjamin Franklin was a a fan, if you will, of George Whitfield, he marveled at him, he went to hear him preach he He was amazed at the the power, but basically his oratorical abilities, Whitfield could preach and be heard by thousands and thousands, upwards of twenty thousand at a time and uh, Benjamin Franklin was mesmerized by him. We know that it was because of the hand of God upon him, it was not because of his oratory as such, but Anyway, Benjamin Franklin printed the the, the the Philadelphia Confessions that came to be known, and I just mentioned that because our church statement of faith is based upon the Philadelphia Confession, and one of the tenets of that confession is found in, in Article Number 18. And if those of you who are students of American history will know this, as a very much a part of our founding fathers' thought process as they were establishing the government of the United States of America. God alone is Lord of conscience. He hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word are not contained in it. Civil magistrates being ordained of God, subjection and all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us in the Lord, not only for wrath but for conscience' sake. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience, those that are illegal according to the scriptures, is to betray true liberty of conscience. And the requiring of an implicit faith, an absolute and blind obedience, is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. And then those dear preachers listed several proof texts, as they always did when they made such a statement. And there they gave first in that list of texts is the one we read from James, James chapter 4. And the verse just preceding verse 12 says, Speak not evil one of another, brethren, he that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another Romans 14 verse 4, who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth, yet he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Acts chapter 4 in verse 19 and 20, when the Sanhedrin had strictly forbidden Peter and, and John to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. We're speaking of the matter of soul conscience. And where does the conscience of the soul and the authority of the government begin and end? I hope we can clarify that tonight. Well, Peter and John give us the precedent that our our forefathers in the faith, as well as the founding forefathers of our nation, and let it be clear, we have not a theocracy here, and that was not the intent of the founding fathers. Those often argue that those of us who advocate the separation of church and state but not that the fact that there should not be a church or that the state should get involved in church activities think that we uh, espouse establishing a theocracy and nothing could be further from the truth king jesus will come and rule and reign one day and establish a theocracy there has not been one since israel of old the old testament and there will not be another until king jesus comes to rule and reign and we would not uh, try to to push uh, uh, a holy commonwealth, even as the, the the pilgrim forebears attempted to do at Plymouth. That is not what we think the scriptures teach. But when the Sanhedrin forbade Peter and John to preach, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or not to teach in the name of Jesus. We have a problem here, don't we? We're to be subject to those who have the rule over us, and we want those who have the rule over us ...command us to disobey our conscience and what we feel the scripture teaches, what do we do? Peter and John answered and said unto them, "...whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God judge you." You'll have to make the judge of that, "...for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard." This liberty of conscience, the duty to be bound by the conscience... 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23, you are bought with a price the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Be ye not the servants of men, brethren, Let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Matthew chapter 15, verse 9, our Lord said, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he was speaking in the context of pushing the writings of the, of the rabbis on the same level as scripture and binding men to be under those things. And he said that is absolutely a violation of conscience. First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Who then is Paul and, and is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. And Paul is teaching here the doctrine that we hold dear, that we're all directly answerable to God. There is no priesthood over us. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we can go directly to him and go uh, directly and boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy to help in time of need. We do not have to go to a pastor or to, uh, to any, any earthly person. Though we might ask someone to pray for us or help us as a matter of prayer, we in no way think that their prayers have any more weight than our prayers. All the redeemed have access to the throne of God. You can go boldly to him. The, the feeblest child of God in this room tonight has as much authority as the boldest, most long-saved Christian who's been saved the longest or who may be strong in the faith. The Lord's ear is bent low to those who cry to him, those who are his children. And we praise him. Aren't you glad that you don't have to go to a committee or to a denomination or to a church for God to hear you? First, Second Corinthians one verse twenty four, not for that we have dominion over your faith. What a statement! Dominion over some control over someone's faith, as in the time of the dark ages, in the time before the Reformation, where church, uh, the established church, tried to control the people' access to the very word of God and to control what people believed. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith ye stand. You stand in your own faith. That faith, though it be as a grain of mustard seed, it is faith imparted to you by a supernatural work of the Lord, that you stand in that faith. You do not stand in my faith, nor do I stand in the faith of someone else. You children do not stand in the faith of your parents. You must answer to the Lord yourself. We believe that each individual has the right to be free and uncoerced in either seeking a relationship with the Lord or not seeking a relationship with the Lord. We, we believe as believers in Christ, we are to tell the gospel, to preach and to plead and with all long suffering, but we are not to coerce anyone by force to believe or, or join anything. And if, if someone does not want to have any kind of relationship with God whatsoever, we mourn over that, we grieve over that, but we do not believe it, a person should be forced into such a thing. This conviction calls our, our Baptist forefathers to support the founders of our nation and to influence them in their writing of the Constitution to allow a free church in a free state, both to be free and neither to entangle in the affairs of the other. Now, this gets very murky, doesn't it? In 200-plus years later, these things that were clearly understood by the founders are now as if it were speaking a different language and a different, from a different planet as far as the interpretation of these things. But they held that no one should be forced to be a member of a church, and this is, this was the issue at hand because they came from countries where whether you went or were a believer or not, you're forced to be by being born and then christened as a baby uh, into that church and by law to pay tithes to the church. There were state church. There was the church of England of the church in Holland. All these countries had a state church. And that's what our founding fathers uh, did not want there to be that everyone should have a free conscience to choose to worship or not worship, and there should not be a a church established by the government. They weren't saying there shouldn't be churches, and that they should have the authority to to preach the gospel and to evangelize, but that the state should not force a church and for people to be members of that church. They held that one should not be forced into that. But those who are members of a church... Uh, should not be unless they had voluntarily by conscience and by the work of the Spirit uh, voluntarily aligned themselves with the Lord Jesus as their Savior and to openly follow Him in baptism as a personal confession of faith and willingly join with a congregation of believers. And that's exactly what they had in mind. These free and unrestrained and uncompelled tenets were the guidelines or prerequisites for church membership, and interestingly, it influenced our founding fathers to reject the notion of a state church. J.B. Jeter writes in his book, Baptist Principles Reset, in 1904, he writes, Baptists have been unswervingly loyal to the principles of religious liberty. Whatever may have been their faults... They have been free from the guilt of persecution. They have not only been the earnest advocates of religious liberty, but they have supported it in its fullest extent. They have not only claimed it for themselves, but have accorded it to others, Jews and pagans as well as Christians. According to John Adams, not the the son of, of the President Adams, but his name is the same, John Quincy Adams, a very early Baptist preacher in 1825, He writes that Baptists, more than any other religious group, have propagated and defended religious liberty. He states that they have stood as the defenders of religious liberty during the progress of the Reformation and for many years after. They oppose religious toleration because toleration is not liberty. Baptists also view religious liberty as a theological corollary to soul competency. That each man is an immortal soul who will have to stand and give an account to the Lord himself. There is no human leader, no potentate, no priest, no preacher or pope who can override this sole liberty of conscience. We answer to Christ alone. And again, we quote from Paul's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, because he gave himself a ransom for all, to test, be testified of in due time. We read in First Peter this, this evening, be "...yet ye also as lively stones are built up into a spiritual house and holy priesthood." There is a priesthood, but it's the priesthood of believers. And the New Testament writers borrow from that Old Testament picture of the Aaronic priesthood, the sons of Aaron, who had set apart by the Lord to represent the nation of Israel to Jehovah. Because of the sinfulness of man, man could not come before the Lord. And he gave a a great object lesson, the garments of the the priest, the sacrifice for his own sin before he could sacrifice on behalf of others. All that he must go through, the washings and the animals, the perfection of the animals, all of that in type and picture represented the coming work of the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. When Christ cried out, it is finished. We see when we read the writer of the Hebrews that all of that, the practice of a mediator was no longer needed because the mediator, the one true mediator, the Son of God, had finished that mediatorial work as far as we're concerned of being being saved. But he continues it in appealing for us and praying for us and interceding for us in heaven. You are, though, a priesthood. We... Are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He is our elder brother. The Bible tells us, and we are priests in that we offer up spiritual sacrifices. No longer the blood of goats and bulls and animals and and the sacrificial animals. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And and though we're not going into all that tonight, they're enumerated for us. The sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. Giving to others the sacrifice, these spiritual sacrifices that we are to give as priests before the Lord. And that's why we hold that, that no congregation of believers should be united to either a secular body of a state or government or, or any ecclesiastical hierarchy. The Scripture clearly teaches in the New Testament that each local congregation of believers are answerable to themselves. That they answer to the Lord, first and foremost, the head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no human agency that takes that place. The pastor of the church doesn't take that place. The eldership, the leadership of the church does not abrogate the place of Jesus Christ. We are our are joint heirs. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. All those familial uh, teachings that we looked at this morning, the uh, men are as our fathers, the men, uh, women are as our mothers, the w- other women as our sisters and brothers. This is the, the rule of thumb in the, in the church. Though God has given leadership, it is only to guide and to help. It is not to lord over Or, uh, in this sense, of telling people, uh, 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 overriding their conscience. A church is to be a self governing, as the Bible tells us, according to the pattern revealed in the New Testament. And that's why the state is not and cannot be authorized to license members or ministers. They've tried down through the ages. John Bunyan spent most of his ministry in prison because he refused to take a license from the government. He said, the government did not call me to preach. It does not have the authority for a lesser to rule over a greater. And the greatest is the king of kings and lord of lords. The government of the United States does not call ministers into the gospel ministry. And they have no authority whatsoever to license them. They have no authority at all over that. And that's what is held dear uh, by us and by our founding fathers. They knew and understood this very clearly. There was no murkiness here. They feel, uh, totally understood what was being discussed by that phrase that is not even written in the Constitution, you'll search in vain. I marvel at people like this. I know it's somewhere in the Bible, and they'll quote something, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness or something like that. And the the, the whole thing of separation in church of state is not written in the, in the, the scripture in the scripture and the constitution it's not there it's a principle that's found in a letter uh, written to thomas jefferson about the uh, congregation a local congregation there uh, in that day and he, they have lifted it from that letter but it's not in, in our governmental doctrine uh, governmental uh, papers at all and so we would never be for government laws that force people to what if the government tomorrow said we're going to force a law that everybody must affiliate themselves with some church. Some people would say, oh, that's a great idea. It's a horrible idea. The government has no business doing that kind of thing. We would not be for that. We would rally against it. We would oppose it. The fact that the United States government, and I I'm being facetious here, will never have to worry about that, but what if they did we didn't think we'd have to worry about a lot of stuff that we're having to worry about now to force people to attend a church or on Sunday or to force them to, be, uh, to tithe to a church. We would be against that, nor would we be for the state restricting the individual's right to, to freely and openly associate with other like-minded believers, following their conscience of how they should worship. We believe firmly what John Broda states, that the state should in no way violate the organization, faith, worship, and discipline of a church that's why when paul wrote the corinthians they were suing each other over church matters and he was just grieved by it and he says what authority does a secular judge have and we hear often this it's not unusual at all it used to be very unusual but it's not unusual to hear where a church will sue a pastor there was a church in this city the pastor locked the doors he changed the locks on the doors and a whole segment of the congregation couldn't get in to the service, and it just a rigmarole. And of course, you know where that went. It went before a judge who had to be scratching his head about what that was about. I bet you they couldn't even tell what it was about. I bet I bet you really couldn't get down to the kernel of truth of how. But even if they could, it had no business being in that format. Paul wrote to the Corinthians: Is there not anybody spiritual enough? among you to hear and decide the matter? Well, even if the answer is no, it should not go before a magistrate in that way. We believe that, that this is should not be. And while we should be good and law-abiding citizens and submit to the government over us for just punishment if we violate the laws that are beneficial to the order and the welfare of society, remember God is the one who decided that and set that up, we believe in the right to rebel against any law of man that would compel us to violate a clear teaching of Scripture. Now, this is a, a, this is a thin line at times, and it's, I know it's ground that we don't feel comfortable with, but it's very real. And I prophesy, and I'm not a prophet, but I will tell you that this is going to be more and more brought to the forefront as we see the Lord Tarius coming, as we see the things falling into place in our nation the uh, p laverne in his book baptist distinctives writes the church and the state must always remain separate there must be no union of church and state and no form or coercion in society in matters of faith the union of the church and state means either coercion or discriminatory advantages either is an enemy of freedom and equality Every enemy of freedom and equality is an enemy of the primacy and the dignity of the individual. As believers in the Bible, we know that God has ordained government and the law. Civil law is based on the moral law of God. When you hear that it's wrong to steal from your neighbors, if you wanted, saw your neighbor's lawnmower, he left out in the yard and you decided to take it, that's wrong, isn't it? How do we know it's wrong? The moral law of God. The United States didn't make that up. And British law didn't make that up. And Blackstone's commentaries didn't come up with that. Ancient Greek and Roman uh, society didn't come up with that. God himself said that that's wrong to do. We believe that. We're to pray for those that have the rule over us as we did tonight in this service. I want you to turn, if you will, to, to Romans chapter 13. I think Baptists need to be reminded of this and all Christians need to be reminded of what the Scripture has to say in this matter. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. What a statement. There's no one in authority that God did not allow to be there. The powers that be are ordained of whom? Of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, the government, the law that God has placed... Resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. What strong words these are. Because when you blaspheme the government, you're blaspheming the God who established it. Now, we're not to say that we have a perfect government. But God God allowed His people to be under Pharaoh for a period of time. And we could go through the government down through history, and God, for various reasons, allowed those to be in places of authority. For rulers are not a terror to good works, or should not be. They may at times. We see it in this day in which we live. But to the evil, wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? There should be a reverential awe of it. Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same for he is the minister of God to thee for good. And in fact, in many European governments, the different cabinet offices are, offices are referred to as ministers. Where do they get that? From the scripture. From the teaching of scripture. They are ministers to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. You should be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God. A revenger to execute wrath upon them that doeth evil. We're we're approaching in our nation very just not far from anarchy when groups of people decide they don't have to obey the rule that's over them. Now we know there are misuses and abuses and those things need to be worked out. But we don't have the power to riot and to destroy property and to kill officers. The Bible says, Are you not scared to do that? You should be in fear and trembling to do such a thing. God is a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject. You must be in submission, not only for wrath, but also for what? Here's what we're talking about tonight. So the, the, the conscience of the soul, soul conscious. For the conscience sake, for, for this cause pay you tribute also. That horrible, dirty word, taxes. We hate it, don't we? And I'm being facetious here. But God instituted that. For they are God's ministers. He reminds us that again. Attending continually upon this very thing, render therefore to all their dues what is owed to them. Whether you think it's owed to them or not. That government that we live under has established that. And we're to do what we're, to, what we're required to do. Tribute to whom tribute. You know what that is? That's taxes and tariffs and all those things. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Now, the Bible does not contradict itself. Having read that, we also know the the, the law of of a higher power. And from that, Peter and John appealed and said, whether... We must preach and teach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we we realize that we have brothers and sisters in countries all over the world that it's illegal for them to do what we're doing tonight. They have their pastors who have been in prison for years for for doing nothing but preaching and and teaching the things that we're, we're teaching here. We believe that God has given to each man not only a soul. We all are an immortal soul made in the image of God with the ability to discern, to think, to love, to hate, to create, to worship, were made in God's image. Male and female made He them in the very image of God. What a mystery that is, and what an awesome thing that is, that we are His people. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We believe that God has given to us not only a soul, though, but a conscience. The book of Romans tells us in Romans chapter 1 that upon the inside of every person, there's a conscience. We see that in verse 11 of Romans chapter 2, there's no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. Those who've never had the Bible will still perish without the law. And the Bible tells us why. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are justified before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For in verse 14 he tells us what, the, what I just stated, that, that, ev- that everyone has a conscience. And upon that conscience is emblazoned the, the moral law of God. For when the Gentiles... And that word Gentiles, of course, means all those who are not of the of the of the descendants of Abraham, who actually had the, the commandments given to them. For when those who are not Jews, which have not the law, do by nature the things that are in the law, who steal or don't or don't steal or don't commit murder because they know it's wrong, how do they know it's wrong? Paul tells us when they do those things, by nature, the things contained in the law, these having not the law written or verbally given to them, or a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel." He starts off saying, do you think that you're going to escape, thou, the righteousness of God or the wrath of God upon evil? And he goes on to explain what the conscience is, that inner umpire, that, that judge that God has placed in every heart, part of the inner man, part of the soul, but not the soul itself, that, that standard that God has embedded and placed in every part every heart that works in conjunction with the law of God. Now, a conscience, someone may say, let your conscience be your guide. That is not good advice. Why? Because being lost apart from Christ, our conscience can be flawed. You may be taught that it's okay to do such certain things, certain cultures that may violate the, the law of God, and the conscience become, becomes uh, calloused to that. But the conscience that God is placed in accordance to the, the Word of God being preached and the working of the Holy Spirit will lead a person to repentance. The conscience, though, from a little child knows when they've done wrong, don't they? Why is it they have the cookie behind their back when you ask, Susie, what is that in your hand? I mean, they didn't read a Bible verse. Their conscience condemns them. They know what guilt is. Where does guilt come from? The conscience that gift that God has given all of us. Can you imagine? Now, contrary to the sociologists, there are not those who are born without one. The depravity of man affects every area and greatly hinders and greatly affects all the the parts of of us that God has established. But there's a conscience in every heart, in the law of God written in every heart. Now, the conscience of a redeemed person the Holy Spirit uses to lead and guide them. And it's something that needs to be developed and listened to because God will speak to us. His Word will ring true to us. We believe that God has given to us this gift. In the, we believe in the right of, of private interpretation of each believer to obey the Scriptures according to their conscience. We do not lord it over the conscience. And that means that in finer points... We know, and we'll say with all authority, the Bible is the inspired word of God. That's non-negotiable. But there may be some finer points that you and I would not see eye to eye on. And as Baptists, we would say, you have the conscience, the, the, the priesthood of the believer, to go before the Lord, to ask Him to show you the Scriptures, and to be true to that. We believe in the, the right of private interpretation of Scripture, that the, that the Lord would speak to the heart. And uh, through the word of God, that doesn't mean we don't need teachers or God would not have established teachers or pastors. That is his will. Our leadership or Bible teachers and and evangelists and all that he's given to us. But we do not lord it over the conscience. We point you to thus saith the Lord into the scripture and ask you to seek the Lord's face and have him to show you these things. If they be from the Lord. What a sobering thing it is to think that each one of of us individually will stand before Him one day. The Apostle Paul tells all of us, Saved and unsaved, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now you may think about that flippantly, and if you do, you have no concept of what that meeting will be. We know as believers... And there's no contradicting here, contradiction here that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That Our standing is a firm standing. We have been justified by the work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. What great grace we experience tonight that there's now nothing. The, the ordinances and the offenses of law that were written against us were nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. For the believer, we believe that we will stand before the Lord and give an account for those things that we've done in this body. Whether we've been faithful to the trust that he's left us, whether we've served him out of proper motive or not, and the basis of that will not be our eternal standing before him, which has been secured at salvation, but it will be to examine us and our work for him on the basis of rewards. And Paul says, uh, illustrates that, enumerates that in First Corinthians chapter 3 and in other scriptures. But there's another judgment of which we'll all stand one day. The saved will stand as kind of a grand jury, although we will have no say-so in it. The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which will come out of the, the, the mouth of the Son of God, will be the standard by which everyone is judged. Listen to the sobering words of the last revelation that God gave to the last apostle. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. In other words, no place to flee. Where will you flee when you're before the all-seeing eye of the Son of God? And I saw the dead small and great the insignificant on this earth and the famous they all stood there before god and the books were opened these books that you're holding in your lap will be the standard that god will use the lamb's book of life will surely be opened to see if names are recorded because someone will cry i know i must be there the book of works will be opened And another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead which were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. These, The sea and hell are emptying out all souls to be summoned before the judge of all the earth. Remember he can only do that which is Right. And they were judged every man according to their works. Not working their way into heaven, but did they believe on Jesus Christ? Did you come in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ? And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What awesome... Rendering that is. That great day. As a preacher of the gospel, I'm to remind you that there's coming a great day. The day of the Lord. The day when all souls will be summoned to stand before Him. Can you imagine we, the bride of Christ, witnessing those who are outside of Him? Outside of grace? those who spurned the name of Jesus Christ, those who had no concern, no care whatsoever about the things I'm preaching about tonight. Let me live my life. Let me have my way running headlong to eternity until they come to this abrupt stop. You can run and run and run, but one day you must stop and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account, give an answer. Of These things that are written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, we praise God that the Bible says that all who will will seek Him will find Him. Seek me while I may be found, He tells us through Isaiah. And so many times throughout the Scripture, James himself says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Oh, what an invitation. The door is open. The great invitation of God is for all men everywhere to repent. And that is our message if they choose not to, that's between them and the Lord. We don't brush it aside. We're not unconcerned. It should break our heart. It should cause us to, to, to tremble in our soul when someone says, I have no concern about the gospel that you're preaching. I don't believe it. I don't have anything to do with it. But they, in their conscience, must stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account. For our part, may we be found faithful. May we be faithful witnesses. I wonder that as we stand before there one day and see these people cast into the lake of fire, will some who knew us look at us and tell us, why didn't you tell me? You never said a word to me about this. I didn't know. I sat in the next cubicle of you at work and you never said anything about this. You were my own brother. We were born of the same mother. You never mentioned to me the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. I believe there will be tears before the last tears are wiped away. And I believe that there are to be at this place. I remember pleading with a man who was making a horrible decision. And I pled with him on this basis. I said, the decision you're making would be very well influence your children for, for the gospel or, or to turn their backs on it. And I said, You, there are immortal souls that will stand and give an account one day. How could you so heartlessly have your own will when you may one day see the righteous judge cast your children to the lake of fire? I think I've shared with you that Charles Spurgeon's mother dutifully read to her children everything she could about the gospel. And she read to them Erskine's book on the seekers of salvation, a very weighty book. Spurgeon said, but my mother dutifully read through it with us as children. Every Sunday evening she took a portion of time after they got home and read to them works not only from the Scripture, but of evangelistic works to point them to the Savior. And he said, my dear mother looked at us, her children, and said... If you reject this gospel, this precious and glorious gospel, I will have to be to stand and give a witness against you in the great day. What a horrible thing to think of that, but may we be clear of those that we're spiritually responsible for. Our mothers, on this Mother's Day, you are responsible for the souls of your children, at least living the gospel and sharing the gospel with them and praying over them and pointing them to Jesus Christ. And all of us are responsible to get that message. How can we we face it ambivalently? How can we act like it doesn't matter? While we do believe that every person must for themselves come before Jesus Christ, it cannot be forced or coerced. Our tears and our prayers and our pleadings and our efforts to explain and point them to Jesus Christ, may they have to climb over all of that to get into hell. May the Lord bless this Word this Lord's Day evening.